Amen. Well, we are in week three uh, of our Multiply series, uh, and if you're following along in the book, you know that we're kind of closing up this week our, our section one uh, of what is a disciple. And so far, we've talked about uh, what is a disciple. A disciple is someone who, who is willing to, to basically give it all up for the sake of Christ. So someone who is so willing to, to hold so loosely to the things of this world and so tightly to Jesus Christ that we're willing to give it all up to follow him. And we're willing to obey every command of his. And then last week we talked about what, what the, the strategy is, right? If we're going to be a disciple who makes disciples, what does that look like? Well, we read the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them, in the, teach them to obey the commandments that I've given you. Go, baptize, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. This is the strategy that we see all throughout the New Testament, strategy that, gives, that Jesus gives us. His, his parting words, basically, were this. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them. And what we said last week was that the, the what never changes. The message never changes, right? This, this, is, this is always the strategy. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. The how always changes. Right? But this is, this is the thing. We always need to be going, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. Be a disciple who makes disciples. This week, <clears throat> we're going to kind of finish off this, this first section, talking about what is a disciple with, with really the why question. Right? There's been the what is a disciple, and then kind of the how and now why? Why would we be this? Why would we be a disciple who makes disciples? And really, as I was thinking about this week, this is what it came down to for me. <clears throat> it's this. If you really believe that what you believe is true, then your life should reflect it. If you really believe that what you believe is true, your life should be the proof. Now, why do we do it? Is it just because Jesus told us to do it? I mean, there's part of that in there, right? We're obeying Jesus, right? But why do we do it? We don't just do it out of duty. We don't just do it because we're supposed to. Right? We, we go, we, we make disciples who make disciples because we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And he's going to do the things that he says he does. And we believe that he's done what he's done for us. We believe that he, he went and he died on the cross and he rose on the third day. He defeated sin. He defeated death for you and for me. But it doesn't stay with you and me. We believe that this message is for the entire world. And so why do we do this? Why do we make disciples? Why are we disciples who make disciples who make disciples? It's not out of duty. It's because uh, if we really believe that what we believe is true, then this is the outcome. This is the natural outflow of believing that God is real. He says who he is, who he says he is. He does the things he says he does. We go. And we make disciples of all nations. We baptize them and we teach them. That's why. Because there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to live. If you believe what you believe is real, then your life will be the proof. That's just the thought that I haven't been able to get out of my head this week. If, if you believe what you believe is really true, then there will be action. 
your life will have to be the proof. And that's really why. Why are we disciples who make disciples of all nations, who make disciples? Because we believe we're right. We believe that what we believe is true. And so there's no other outcome, there's no other outflow from this belief than to go and to make disciples. See, I think sometimes we've gotten stuck. And we've substituted coming forward for going out. And we've had this, this idea that if I just believe the right things, then I'm good to go. See, it's one thing to, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he can do the things he says he does. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose again on the third day for me, and not just for me, but for the entire world. But if it stops there, it's worth nothing. Turn with me to the book of James. We're going to read out of James 2 today. <clears throat> James chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 8, and then we'll talk about this a little bit. James chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Here's what he says. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law or whoever heaps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment." What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, I have faith, I ha- I ha- you have faith, and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want you have evidence that faith without deeds is useless? <clears throat> Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And scripture says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that people are justified by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, to, to really fully get this, I think we need to, to understand what James is saying here. James is, 
James is, has kind of a definition, a running definition of faith and deeds. And here's basically what it is. Faith for James is cognitive belief. It's kind of an intellectual assent to this. This is what I believe. It's having the right beliefs. All right, it's kind of a, an intellectual only thing. It's not an all-encompassing word for James. Deeds for James is kind of the, the tangible outflow from the cognitive beliefs. Right? Because I believe this, I will have action that accompanies this. This is, the, this is faith and deeds in, terms, in, in James' terms. I, I just want to reread this in verses 14 through 17. I want to I change some words here, okay? Just so we can kind of more fully understand what James is saying. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have the right beliefs but, have the, but don't translate that into action? Can such beliefs save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, beliefs by themselves, if they're not accompanied by action, are dead. But someone will say, you have the right beliefs, but I have the right actions. Show me your beliefs without the actions, and I'll show you my beliefs by my actions. You, be, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You see what James is saying here. Right? Faith and deeds, they have to go together. Right? They absolutely have to go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other, no matter which one you have. Right? There's a couple things here. James is... James is <clears throat> um, <coughs> James is, is addressing a culture here, and he's addressing this culture that is, that is basically saying, all I need to do is believe the right things, and I'm good to go. James is addressing this culture, and he's saying, you believe the right things, that's really good, right? Good, even the demons believe that, he says. All right, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Right, James is really doing, doing two things here. Right? He's, he's kind of saying two things in this passage. First of all, he is affirming right belief. Right, there has to be a, a cognitive dimension to our faith. Right, there has to be beliefs involved in our faith. It can't just all be warm, fuzzy feelings. Right, it's just like any relationship. Our relationship with God is just like any other relationship. In any other relationship, right? when, when, I, when I talk about my, my wife, Rachel, when people talk to us, right, and, and we're sharing stories about how we started getting together and how we started dating, and the question will come up, and, and, and people will ask about your relationship, my relationship, when did you know? When did you know that she was the right one? When did you know that he was the right one? Right, from the very beginning, what do, what do we have? There's always like the warm, fuzzy feelings there. Right, but the question is never like, when did those warm, fuzzy feelings start? Right? The question is, when did you know? Right, there's, a, there's a belief there. When did you know that she was the right one? When did you know that he was the right one? It's the same way in our relationship with God. It can't all just be warm, fuzzy feelings. We should be able to answer the question, when did you know? When did you know that he was the one? When did you know 
that you believed in Jesus Christ? And what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Can you articulate your beliefs? Right? There, there has to be this, this cognitive dimension. And, and I think James is affirming that. James is not discounting faith or deeds. He's saying, in fact, you can't have one without the other. He's saying faith, good, right, the right faith, the right beliefs is definitely an essential. You have to have the right beliefs. But what he's also saying is right beliefs are not enough. They're just not enough. You can't only have the right beliefs. It can't be done. It's just the belief is not enough. Even the demons know, but they're still demons. I'm going to say it again. Even the demons know, but they're still demons. What does that mean? It means they're not, they haven't done anything with it. There's no life change that came along with believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Even the demons believe it, but they're still demons. The craziest thing about, about churches in general. So there are a lot of people sitting in pews just, in, just like you and me today who have great demon-like faith. We believe that he is who he says he is. We believe in the Son of God. But we haven't let it change us one bit. That's a scary thought for me. And it should be for you. If faith, if we don't allow our faith to morph into something other than just having the right beliefs, what makes us any different from the demons? You believe in the one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And I just, just let that sink in a little bit. I think that's just crazy. There are a lot of people, even in churches today, right, they believe, they absolutely believe 100%, but they have not allowed it one bit to change their lives. Now, see, for, for James... True faith is always visible. True faith is always visible. Faith is more than just believing the right things, saying the right prayers, doing all this stuff. Faith has to be more. Faith has to be visible for James. There's no other way. Right? Faith, is, faith for James was, I mean, even in in verse 18, here's what he says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do, right? This is, this is James's thing here. This, you, faith has to be visible, right? Here's, here's the thing. Faith was never meant to be private. Faith was never meant to be private. Tell me if you've heard this before. Oh, my faith, you know, that's just, that's just between me and God. That's a private thing. Man, that just sounds so spiritual, doesn't it, when you hear that? But man, that is just so not biblical. It's not biblical. Right? Faith isn't meant to be private. Right? Personal? Yeah, absolutely. But private? No. Right? Your, your faith, by definition, has to be shown. It has, there has to be an outlet. There has to be an outflow because of the beliefs that you believe. 
Right? Faith is never meant to be private. It, in fact, is meant to be public. Personal, yes. Private, no. We have to have a, a, a public faith, a, a personal faith, yes. Right? The best witness is not, our, is not our words. It's our action. And not to say that words aren't important. There's a, there comes a time when the words are really important. But if the words are not backed up and authenticated by our actions, they are worth nothing. They're worth nothing. Our words that we say have to be authenticated by the, by the actions that we live our life by. It has to happen. It has to happen. What we say is important, but it can be hollow if we don't authenticate it by our lives. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus talks about salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount. And in, the, in this light, I want us to just see the, the passage here on light in, in the, in the, in, through the lens of James. Here's what he says. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good deeds. Right through the lens of James, we can say, so they may see the action that stems from your right beliefs and glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus, is, Jesus says the same thing. Why? This is really the answer. Why? why? Why are we disciples who make disciples? It's so the world can see. And so the world can glorify Jesus Christ. So at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen out of nowhere, right? This has to be something that we participate in. In fact, that's the coolest part about that, is that Jesus calls us to participate in that. Right? If God wanted every knee to bow and every tongue confess right now, he could just snap a finger and make it happen, and every tongue would confess, and every knee would bow. Amen. But he doesn't do it, right? He needs us. He, not that he needs us. He, he wants us to participate in this. We have a responsibility in this. We have to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We might not see that in our lifetime, but it will happen. But here's what I do know about our lifetimes. We can speed it up. If we do nothing... If we're comfortable just coming to church and sitting here and not making a difference in people's lives and not being a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple, guess what? The church dies with us. I'm here today because people shared with me. People invested in me. There was a disciple who made a disciple. You are here today because there was a disciple who made a disciple. Amen. Here's the scary question. Who's coming behind you? Who's coming behind you? 
See, this is the importance of this. This is why. And here's, here's what I know about where we stand today. Our world that we live in is sick and tired of hearing the Christian rhetoric just talked at them. Our world that we live in is so hungry to see what we're saying be real in our lives, to see the action that comes with believing what we believe. This is what it's all about. Our world is starving to actually see Christians living it out. I don't know about you, I want to be one of those people. I want to be the disciple making a disciple. I want to know who's coming behind me. Right? I, I, I'm not satisfied just, just being me and staying here. Right? If we're not bringing someone else along with us, then what is the point? I'll give you a hint. There isn't one. We have to bring people along. We have to bring people along with us. Right? The world is hungry for it. And if we, if we really believe what we believe is true, then we will want the world to see it. Because if we really believe that what we believe is true, we know that it's not just for you and for me. So what does this look like? What does is, what is a faith that, that is lived out actually look like? What are some practical examples? Well, James actually kind of gives us some practical examples of what it looks like when a faith is actually lived out. Right, James, in, 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 uh, in verses 16 and 17, says this. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, with, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Right, here's what James, here's a practical way that James is saying that our faith can be lived out in action. It's, it's helping someone in need. Helping someone in need. Right, you read the end of chapter 1 in James, and it's talking about caring for the orphans and caring for the widows. Right, just, just even in the beginning of the passage we read today, right, we're talking about mercy over judgment. We're talking about caring for the people who need it. This is what it looks like. It's about faith in action is caring for those in need. I may have shared this story before. There's, a, there's an author named, by the name of Shane Claiborne. Uh, he wrote a book. He's written a lot of books, but one of his books is called The Irresistible Revolution. Right? And in this book, he's kind of just telling stories about the community that he lives in and, and, and how this has all played out in his life. And he lives in downtown Philadelphia. And he said in his neighborhood, they live in, in a really poor area of Philadelphia. In his neighborhood, there was a warehouse where a lot of homeless people just kind of, that's where they were. That's where they lived. And one night, this, this warehouse caught fire. Fire department comes. It's a, it's a huge fire. Fire department comes. The Red Cross comes to take care of everybody. And that night, Shane gets a knock on his door. And it's someone from the Red Cross. It says, hey, we're taking off. And then Shane just goes, hey, I mean, what's going on? Like, why, why would you leave? There's like, all kinds of people in this warehouse that need your help. And, and the Red Cross people looked him in the eyes and they said, no one in that place needs our help. Your neighborhood, your house and the people in your neighborhood have taken every single one of those people in. We're not needed here. We're going to leave. 
That's, that's, that's taking care of people in need. And like I said in week one, it's holding on so loosely to the things of this world and so tightly to the things of Jesus. How many of us would feel comfortable inviting in a homeless person from the warehouse across the street just to, to come in and, and live with us until he can get himself back together? It's caring for the people in need, the caring for the people around us that are in need. And maybe it's not a homeless person around you that's in need. Maybe it's someone else. But it's caring for that person in need. That's faith in action. Right, James also in this chapter talks about Abraham. Right? He talks about Abraham and, and believing in the promise. And, and he was his, his, basically his belief in, in God, his trust in God, was counted to him as righteousness. Right? How does, what does faith in action look like? Well, for Abraham, faith in, faith in action was just trusting in the promises of God. And out of, those, out of, out of this, this trust in the promises of God, life was different for Abraham. All right, we, we, Abraham's story is in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, 15 is kind of these promises to, to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is promised. He's 75 years old at this point. Abraham is promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Right? Ten years later, in chapter 15, he's promised again that, that, that his descendants would come. There's a problem here, though, that Abraham and Sarah, his wife, don't have any kids. They don't have any descendants yet. And they're, they're 85 years old and 75 years old for Sarah. Right? Fifteen years later, Abraham's 100 and, and Sarah's 85. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. What happens? They laugh it off, right? But Abraham believes. Abraham believes in the promises of God. Later on, if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham, God asks Abraham to, to sacrifice his, his son Isaac. The same son that God had promised Abraham would, be, would, would basically carry on his line. That the descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Right? This is, he would be a blessing to all nations. Right? Through, through Isaac, his son, God says, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac. And here's, here's what trusting in God did for Abraham. Abraham, on his way up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac asked him, hey, hey Dad, where's the, where's the sheep? Where's the, where's the ram for the offering? Abraham looks at his son in the eyes. I'm, assuming, I'm just going to play the story up a little bit. Looks at him, looks at his son. And he says, God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the sacrifice. I cannot imagine walking up this hill with my son, who God has just told me to sacrifice, and he says, hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And just looking at him and knowing it's right there. But Abraham trusts God and says, God will provide the sacrifice. Abraham ties his son Isaac on the altar, raises the knife, and God stops him. Abraham, stop. But, and then he provides the ram in the thicket, right? The ram's in the ticket, and they can sacrifice, and they go down the hill. You can imagine the conversation on the way down the hill, right? But think about this. Abraham trusted in the promises of God. And it changed the way that he acted. His life was different because of it. The craziest thing about this, though, is it wasn't always that way. Right? If you read the story of Abraham, 
Right? Abraham was kind of tired of waiting, tired of waiting on God to fulfill his promise, right? So, 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 and Sarah was too, his wife. And so Sarah gives Hagar, her, her maid, right, to Abraham, and they have a baby. Right? Abraham got so tired of waiting for the promises of God that he, at some point he tried to take it into his own hands. Right? But, but as, when he waited, when he actually listened and believed in the promise of God, things were different, right? And his faith was in action. He's, you can read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? He's in there. It wasn't always like that, but he was in there. He was, he was a man of faith, and it changed the way that he lived, and God fulfilled his promises. Right? If you trust in the promises of God, your life will look different. So, practical examples, right? Care for others. Trust in the promises of God. And then James brings up Rahab, right? Rahab is this last one, right? And really, here's, here's what I can say about Rahab. Rahab took a risk. Right? Real faith, true faith, visible faith takes risks. Abraham took a risk. Rahab took a risk. Rahab didn't need to... Rahab, you find the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua, right? Joshua and the, the walls of Jericho. We know that story, the walls of Jericho. Rahab is, is the woman inside the walls of Jericho who hid the spies from the men who were looking for them and sent them out. And she asked them to spare, to spare her life and the life of her family. She didn't need to do that. But she took a risk because she believed she believed that the God of these men and of the Israelites was the one true God. So she took this risk. And here's the, the coolest thing about Rahab, I think. If you look in Matthew chapter 1 and you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there's a woman in there. Her name is Rahab. One of the few women that was, that was placed into the genealogy of Jesus. It's weird for a woman to be even placed in the genealogy just the way it was written, right? Rahab's in there. Why? Because she, she took a risk. She had faith. Her faith was, was played out in action. True faith has to be visible, according to James, right? This is what James tells us. Why, why, do we do the, why, do, why are we a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple? Because if we really believe what we believe is true, then it has to be visible. It has to be visible. So how does, this, how does this stack up? Right? How, do, how does this whole visible faith thing stack up? How does, how does what James is saying stack up against, say, what Paul says? Right? Because Paul in, in Ephesians and, and Romans talks about faith alone. Right? It's faith alone. You're saved through faith alone. Not by works so that no one can boast, but, but faith alone. Right? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. This is where Paul says this. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Right? You could read that and you could say, see, Pastor Chris, James is a little bit off there, right? If we're talking about Paul and James, I'm going to run with Paul, Pastor Chris, I don't know about that. Right? Through faith alone is what Paul says. Right? Here's, here's the thing about Paul. Paul's running definition of faith is a little different than James's. Paul's running definition of faith is more of an all-encompassing thing. Right? Paul is assuming 
that the, the faith and the deeds are there. Paul is also addressing the exact opposite issue that James is addressing in the book of James. All right, for Paul, what Paul is addressing is people who thought that, that deeds and works were a prerequisite for faith. Right, you couldn't have faith unless you did this thing first. Right, this, these are the kind of people that, that Paul is writing to. Right, He's addressing this, this, the opposite issue. And Paul is saying deeds are not a prerequisite of your faith. There's no prereqs to, to believing in Christ. Right, But faith in Christ will bring these deeds. Out of your faith in Christ, the works and the deeds will come. Right? Christ does not say, before you come, before you believe in me, there's some things you got to do. Right? No, I've heard it said a lot of times before, God loves you just the way that you are, just where you are, but he refuses to leave you right there. Right? Think about that. Jesus does not, does not require you to, to do certain things before coming to faith. There's not a, and Paul is saying the same thing. There's no prerequisites to faith. Faith starts with faith, and it goes on from there. Right? The, problem with, the problem with reading this faith-only theology in Paul, right, as opposed to James, is that we take verses 8 and 9, and then we don't read verse 10 right after it. Because right? Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Right, we, could, we, could, we could argue about this. Paul says, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. But he also says we're created to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Paul and James are saying the same thing. Faith and deeds have to go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Paul says this, James says this, and this is why, this is why we do what we do. This is why we're disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Because we can't just let it sit with us. Faith without deeds is dead. True faith requires a response. And our response is to go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. That's it. That's what it's about. James closes it off, and he says this, there's this, this one line, James 2.26. Doesn't, doesn't leave any punches out. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I don't want a dead faith. And I don't want you to have a dead faith. We are disciples who make disciples who make disciples until the world knows. Here's the thing. We, we come to places like this and we open up the word and we hear it. But we're not just here to, to receive it. We're here to reproduce it. 
to go out and to, to live it, to go out and to live the kind of life that James and that Paul are talking about living here. If it stops with us, then our faith is no different than a demon's. I don't want demon-like faith. I don't want a dead faith. I want a faith that is, that is willing to say, God, I'm going to go. I'm going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I'm going to baptize them. I'm going to teach them to obey the commandments that you've given us because that's what you call me to do. I hope that challenges you because it challenges me. I want to pray, and I, and I, want, I want us to, to think about this together. Who is it that's coming along behind you? Who are you discipling? Who's carrying on your faith? We talk about legacy a lot, right? We talk about uh, what, leaving a legacy. Who's coming behind you? Who have you passed it on to? Because if we don't pass it on, it dies with us. I'm not willing to let it die with me. I hope you're not either. Let's pray. God, God, we love you. And we are challenged today as we read James and we read Paul. And we realize that, that faith is, is more than just believing the right things. More than just being able to, to say the right words and to, to pray the right prayer, God. But it's got to be about more. It's got to be about action. We need to be able to put our faith in action. Not just because you've told us to. Not out of duty, but out of the fact that we believe that what we believe is real. And we believe that you are who you say you are. God, I pray that this week as we go forward that you would challenge us and that you would convict us to think about who's coming behind us. Who is it that's going to pass on the torch after we go? God, are we making disciples who make disciples who make disciples or are we just stuck at the disciple part? God, do we have the right beliefs only or, or, or are we putting them into action? Would you convict us and challenge us this week? God, put people in our lives that we can talk to and show them to you and show you to them. God, put us in situations where we need to be bold for you. And as we do so, may you just move through us, speak through us, allow us to just be, be so on fire for you that it's just contagious, God. God, we love you, and we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.